I too want to add my welcome to all of the families of Walla Walla University students who are visiting College Place and this campus on this great weekend. We always look forward to these days, a chance to be with you, our extended family, and in many cases, the immediate family of our distinguished scholars. I want to get you a little bit up to date, alerting you that the theme throughout this particular quarter at Vespers, at church, for our week of worship, is a call to serious ethical living, the guts to be moral, the fortitude to live at a higher level in terms of holiness. And we continue that theme today. You know, it's interesting. I think that it's in our human impulse to want to live better. Think of uh, the many pictures that are posted online from this to this and this to that, uh, an attempt to lose weight, to have a makeover, somehow to go from a position of being a lesser human being to something else. And on the pictures <laughs> roll, and I just think this is a part of our, of our makeup. And uh, oh, wait. Wait. Um, sometimes technology fails us, which we'll get to in a minute, but actually the pictures were supposed to look like this. Yes, that's what I was driving at because uh, Dr. Carl Kosart is a hero of mine, and if I'm telling the truth publicly, he gets emails and calls from me to review certain theological points that uh, I may wish to consider. So, Carl, thank you for letting me... Um, tease you a little bit, and there'll be no retaliation, of course. We'll be, we'll be in good stead. I would like to be a better human being. I think this is a part of who we are as homo sapiens. As I mentioned, we continue a series today uh, now looking at the story of Lot and Mrs. Lot, a story in the book of Genesis which really has the opposite flow, doesn't it? It's a story about human beings not becoming better, but rather worse. In short, we discover that Lot and Mrs. Lot moved to the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, a place full of evil, where people do not think straight in nearly every area of their lives. There are no limits, no boundaries, no clear thinking. It is a cesspool of moral corruption. In fact, at one point, just illustrating the pervasive nature of this particular geography, Abraham is in negotiations with God himself. God threatening to destroy the cities. Abraham says, ah, but won't you spare it all if only ten righteous people are there? Shortly thereafter, the city's destroyed. We can't even get into double digits. And the story ends with Lot with great reluctance leaving. And his wife, with even greater reluctance, she turns back. She just can't let go. It's a tale of human beings becoming not better, but much worse. And it's interesting because throughout the Scriptures, we find reference to the language of Sodom and Gomorrah used for prophetic purposes to point to various generations that are missing the mark. Words like unresponsive, hands full of blood, won't listen, 
arrogant, overfed, lazy, senseless, poisonous, bitter, irrational, lack of understanding, clouds without rains, abusive, slanderous, greedy grumblers beneath their pious skins are shameless scoundrels. The most extensive treatment we find in the Apostle Peter's little book where he is writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians, to believers in the person of Jesus. He's writing to church folk and he's saying to them, you are just like Sodom and Gomorrah, you church people. And then he describes these these so-called human beings this way. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals they too will perish. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Two gripping images. The first, a dog returning to its vomit disgusting. And the second of these people, a sow, a pig, wallowing in the mud. No longer human beings. No, these have become animals, these Christians. Animalistic, a definition failing to attain the level as of morality or intelligence associated with normal human beings. Unsuitable or unfit for human beings of a lower order of being than the human having or showing the nature and appetites of a lower animal. For example, with animalistic fury, the boxer tore into his opponent, or simply put, less than human. This is what sin does. Less than human. In fact, we remember those two glorious human beings, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in the image of of their creator. What does sin do? They become animals, right? In body still homo sapien, but in mind, in moral character, no longer at the level they were intended to be. Peter will get to the remedy, and we will get there with Peter in a few moments. But first, I think it would be important on this day for us to have a bit of a timely reflection on some of those areas of threat, those areas that seek to turn us from humans into animals, that rob us of the glorious minds that God has given us. So here goes. First, technology. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I love technology, the progress of the last couple of hundred years, couple decades, even of the last few months. Technology can be a wonderful thing, but must we be careful? How might technology be robbing us of our minds? Nicholas Carr, in his excellent book, The Glass Cage, speaks extensively about ways which he fears technology is taking away our mental exercise. We use phrases like, I'm on autopilot. I'm not thinking. Well, Carr specifically tackles this one. 
January 4, 2013, the Federal Aviation Administration released a one-page notice that went to all of the American airlines worried that pilots were no longer relying on their own skills and abilities but so heavily reliant on the technology that they were not sharp. Quote, encouraging operators to promote manual and flight operations when appropriate. The concern leading to the degradation of the pilot's ability to quickly recover the aircraft from an undesired state, a euphemism for a crash. Part of concern, uh, February 2009. A continental flight from Newark to Buffalo goes down. What do investigators discover? The computer went haywire and the humans didn't have the skill that they should have had to save the plane. 49 people are killed. May of 2009, Air France flight, Rio de Janeiro, bound for Paris, drops 30,000 feet in three minutes. 228 passengers and crew killed in the Atlantic. The cause? The computer goes haywire. Investigators see that humans, not capable of rescuing a situation they ought to have been able to save. Matthew Abadson of Cranfield University, a distinguished engineering school in the United Kingdom, took 66 veteran pilots of British Airways, put them in a Boeing 737 flight simulator, simulated a blown engine during bad weather, disabled the automated system, and discovered that while some pilots performed well, others were in the middle and some catastrophic results. This finding, a correlation with recent manual practice, the pilots who succeeded had recently in their jobs actually had their hand on the stick, were investing significant time with their minds and their bodies in the activity of their profession. The ones who crashed, it had been too long. Findings that there's a manual flying skills decay. In one interview, 75% of pilots said their skills were deteriorating. 95% said automation, in a separate study, uh, that automation was eroding basic manual and cognitive flying skills. As one retired captain put it, we're forgetting how to fly. Did you know that a pilot only holds the stick in a typical flight that you and I would go on, only has their hands at the wheel, if you will, for about three minutes? Other areas, some of you may remember, 2008, Seattle, this bus going under a bridge that did not have enough clearance. Investigators asked the bus driver, what happened? The response, this is where the GPS took me. <laughs> 1995, a Royal Majesty Dream uh, Liner, 1,500 passenger, an ocean liner, goes off track for 30 hours runs aground near Nantucket. The investigators asked what happened. Well, the GPS system went haywire for 30 hours, and the captain and crew, so reliant on the brain of the technology, failed to respond. Millions of dollars lost. Oh, you've heard some of this before, but an important reminder. Studies which show that our ability to spell <laughs> is in decline. I thought this was fascinating. As Google search engines are getting better and better, 
the human ability to enter intelligible things in that little box is going down. Google understands this. Um, it's pretty amazing, blah, 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 exactly what I want. It's uh, pretty incredible. Proofreading in decline. The healthcare industry concern that physicians and other healthcare providers... Oh, I moved too fast through that one. I... Healthcare industry concern that physicians and other healthcare providers so reliant on computers for diagnosis and treatment that the skills are eroding. Mathematicians worried about basic math skills going by the wayside as technology is doing the work. The accounting industry concerned about the same for accountants. Architecture, same concern. What is going on if we lose our ability to actually use a drawing board anymore? I don't know about you, but phone numbers, I can remember a lot of them from when I was a child. Any contemporary number, I'm letting the computer do the work. What is the consequence of that? Or how about the appointments we can no longer remember? Photographers are wondering about the effect of film. When you can just take as many pictures as you want, is there any artistic craft left anymore? GPS now chooses our restaurants for us. Do we miss the opportunity for culinary serendipity? And soon we will no longer vacuum our house or mow our yard. And I think this one's particularly concerning. Mark Zuckerberg, head of Facebook, talks about the mission of Facebook is frictionless friendships. How horrible is that? Friendships. We'll, we'll tell you who to be friends with. We'll sort it out for you, and then you can like one another. What does that do to relationships? New York Times opinion article, Jonathan Four says, the problem with accepting, with preferring, diminished substitutes, the technology doing the work, is that over time we too become diminished substitutes. Nicholas Carr in the glass cage, one of the most remarkable things about us is also one of the easiest to overlook each time we collide with the real. We deepen our understanding of the world and become more fully part of it. What if we never engage the real anymore? The Dutch philosopher Spinoza, the human mind is capable of perceiving a great many things and is the more capable, the more its body can be disposed in a great many ways. The great moral giant Ellen White, true education is the harmonious development of the physical, the mental, and the spiritual powers, engagement with the world. The political scientist Matthew Crawford, I like this too, really no shoelaces. You have to tie shoes. What is technology doing to us? I think it's a fair question. These photographs of children watching television. Alarming, huh? The blank stare, relying on that machine to tell me whatever it will tell me. You see, my friends, if we are turning our brains completely over to technology to do our cognitive, our thinking for us, to perform all of the skills, not only does this damage our capacity to be engaged with sharp minds in the world, what does it do to our relational world? 
And as we learn to trust technology so much without thought, what does this do when we begin to see technology as a source that we can trust with our moral values as well? Oh, I think this is some good Sabbath lunch conversation, don't you? In what ways must we be careful that technology is not robbing us with the God-given ability to be thinkers, to be doers, to be strong moral agents in the world? Number one, technology. How is this moving us in the direction, no longer humans, but animals? Second, uh, family. It is family weekend. Why don't we talk about family for a little bit? We just finished a week of worship here, and on Thursday of that week, the students will remember uh, that we talked about the, the reality that psychologists and sociologists have begun to use flower terminology to refer to children, to human beings, to students, right? And uh, in fact, we uh, talked about uh, one particular flower that's being used is the orchid. Uh, the orchid is fragile, it's, it's flimsy, it's easy to kill, and that some human beings ha have become like this. And uh, in fact, we saw that there's websites dedicated to people that attempt to own orchids that ask these worrying questions. How often should I water my orchid? How often should I be feeding my orchid? What do I do when my orchid stops blooming? I'm growing my orchid in the house, but it never blooms. What can I do? How do I know if my orchid is getting the proper amount of light? When should I repot my orchid? The orchid in my window suddenly start getting black spots on its leaves. Is it sick? And on it goes. Orchids, there's orchid people. But on the other end of the spectrum, psychologists, sociologists are using the terminology of dandelion people. Now, these are folks that are tough. They can grow anywhere. And you don't find websites that say things like this. How often should I water my dandelion? <laughs> Feeding my dandelion. When, why is my dandelion uh, no longer growing, etc.? And the students can tell you that we considered together as a campus if we were building a scale like of Zero to ten, orchid and dandelion, where, where are we on that spectrum? They will also remember that I challenged them to call many of you, their moms and dads, their families, to, to, to remind you that they want to be, that they want to be dandelions. Julia Sithcock Hames was freshman dean at Stanford University for a little over a decade. I just finished her recent book, How to Raise an Adult. The motivation of her book, Experiences with Parents and College Students at Stanford for 10 years, and watching what she believed to be an unhealthy relationship between parents and students, and specifically parents that were not sort of kicking their kids out of the nest, allowing them to, in fact, become adults. Sithcott Hames uh, points out that this begins at an early age. One example uh, she demonstrates is the mini-brake. Have you heard of this? Uh, this is a device that you hook on your child's bicycle, and you have a remote control. <laughs> yes, it's true. And when your child's getting in trouble, you just press the brake. Here's the description on the website. Mini-brake is a remote-controlled bike brake for kids, a unique solution that allows parents to actively prevent accidents. When you sense that your child's in danger, you just press the remote controller and your kid's bike comes to a safe and smooth stop. <laughs> and uh, 
We do sell these at the church for parents of college students, and it applies to a wide range of issues, and you can stop them from doing all kinds of things. It's a... I read recently that there is this habit now of parents sending not one but two cell phones with their children to camp, to Christian camps. Why two? One phone to turn in to the camp staff because that's what's required, and a second phone that they say, you keep that one secret so the parent can keep them on a leash from a distance. Helicopter parenting at the collegiate level is being talked about broadly in our culture. The dangers that come when parents are essentially becoming policemen in the classroom. This classic comparison, decades ago, parents would yell at their kid, these grades are terrible. And now, decades later, they look at the teacher, these grades are terrible. Can't you do something? Now, the onus of responsibility has shifted. Even for young adults just graduated, I read about a recent graduate of an Ivy League school working in New York City in a financial firm making $250,000 a year. But the kid is working really, really hard. I should say the adult is working really, really hard. In fact, too hard, his mother thinks, for mama gets a hold of his boss's private number over the weekend, leaves a message saying, could you please treat my my orchid better? I mean, he, he just can't keep up this pace. Monday morning, the young man shows up for work. The security guard meets him at the door with the box. All of his things have been packed up on the top. This message, ask your mother. And that was the end of his job. A major survey of college students. First, they were asked to define what does it mean to be mature to be an adult, and many good comments about independence and critical thinking and financial management, uh, they, they put together an excellent definition. But then this question, ha having established the definition, are you an adult? Just 16% of college students said, yes, fessed up, I'm an adult. A completely separate survey 2013 American College Health Association, 100,000 students interviewed on 153 campuses. The question, are you overwhelmed? 84% said yes, overwhelmed. Dr. Lithcott Hames posits, we don't yet know if there's causation. But she says from her experience, there certain appears to be at least correlation between the inability to grow up and parents who will not allow and expect their kids to grow up and complete exhaustion in life. There's a relationship. So while we're doing surveys and quizzes, I have supplied the orchestra and choir with a little sheet and it is red and green, and uh, the red is no, and the green is yes. And they have no idea what the questions are going to be, so this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to ask them a series of questions, and they're going to hold their answers high in the air for all of us to see. So uh, we'll start with a couple of easy uh, ones to begin with, my good uh, scholarly colleagues. Here we go. Um, question number one, or, or statement, uh, yes or no. I am a boy. I'm a boy. Okay, good. Uh, I'm a girl. 
All right, we're just, we're getting warmed up. Um, I am a, okay, here we go. I'm a first or second year student at Walla Walla University. I'm a first or second year student at Walla Walla University. Very good. Okay, uh, next question. My dorm room is clean. Yeah. Anything that was green up here, please report that. We're going we're gonna to deal with that. I don't know if there was complete honesty on that question. Uh, next question. I am in love. Mm. Nice. Um, I, have had br I, I have had breakfast at the Maple Counter. All right. I am from California. This is not an audible, not an audible test. <laughs> California, no. Uh, I love country music. Yeah, yeah, good. I want to be an orchid. I want to be a dandelion. Okay, for the most part that worked, okay. <laughs> I want to be a dandelion. I want to be a person of responsibility. The problem is, and I'm a parent, the problem is that if we do all of the thinking and all of the controlling and all of the brake work and gas pedal work, we do everything for our emerging young adults. They will not have the capacity to make good decisions, and this runs all the way up to questions and the guts that come for morality and holiness. They must own it for themselves. Concern number one, a great lunch conversation, technology. Another great piece of lunch conversation, at least for some of us, uh, family, family. A third area of concern is church, church. I was reminded this week of uh, David Kinnaman's research with the Barna Group in his book, You Lost Me, Why Young People Are Leaving the church. Their discovery, 59%, nearly 6 in 10, walking away from the religion of their parents either for an extended period of time or walking away and never coming back. Why? The responses of those young adults. An overprotective, autocratic, my word in parentheses, automated religion. A religion that says you don't need to think. Secondly, a, a shallow religion, they say. Don't have to think. Third, they talk about an anti-science religion. Don't have to think. Fourth, a simplistic religion. Don't have to think. Fifth, a religion inhospitable to questions. Don't have to think. Religion without real experience. Don't have to think. Don't have to engage. This is the religion that these young adults are rejecting. Now, for those who are not Seventh-day Adventists, I want to introduce to you to, to someone who I quoted earlier. 
She is, in Adventist circles, the great philosopher of education, Ellen White. She would have no use for the kind of religion described by these students, the kind of religion that they're rejecting. In fact, in her book titled Education, she famously wrote, Every human being created in the image of God is endowed with a power akin to that of the Creator, individuality, power to think and to do. It is the work of true education. It is the work of Walla Walla University firing on all cylinders to develop this power, to train the youth to be thinkers and not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. Powerful. This person that I just quoted would have no use for unthinking religion. Reflectors, she worries. Now, what is a reflector? I have one here, and I will attempt not to blind you with these lights. This is a mirror. Not mine. It's a mirror. <laughs> This is a reflector. It's really pathetic. It becomes whatever is in front of it. It's a cello, it's a violin, it's a viola, it's a bass, a soprano, it's organ pipes, it's a man, it's a woman, it's this music stand. It's pretty pathetic, isn't it? A reflector. It just becomes whatever is in front of it. That's what it is. This summer, my denomination, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, did the good and important and appropriate work, hear me clearly, of looking again at doctrinal statements, of theological descriptions. This is what theologians and church leaders should do, good and appropriate work to be engaged in. But I was in a conversation um, not terribly long ago and one person in the room asked another person, so if the denomination gave you a list of all of these doctrinal formulations and you had to sign at the bottom, they said you have to sign these and, and agree to all of this, you know, would you do it? And with a wry smile, the, the person responding said, I absolutely would sign it and I would continue to write and I will believe anything you want me to believe in the future. Any change. You see the appropriate critique? If theology and doctrine is something that some group does at a distance, if it's something that the pastor does during the week, and it's something that the rest of us just sit back and go, I don't know, I'll just bring my, I'll bring my reflective self to church and whatever you say is fine. At best, we are people who wish to be spoon-fed. Oh, pastor, I hope you work really, really hard in this sermon to make it entertaining and easy to understand. Man, you better puree it really good because I don't want to chew on anything. It's been a long week. I don't want to think about anything. Could you just... In fact, I love a straw. <laughs> if, if you could make it liquid... I, I just... I just... Oh, I just... just whatever, whatever you write, whatever you say... I'll believe it. At best, this is the church, if you go down that road. At worst, I refer you back to the biblical language of a pig wallowing in the mud where we no longer are human, 
But we are animals, having checked our minds at the door, no longer engaging in the hard theological and doctrinal and moral work that each one of us in this room ought to be doing for ourselves, not telling someone else to do for us. Now you have three great lunchtime conversations. Technology, family, the church. These are big moral questions, friends. And to what degree are these things, are we allowing these things to rob us of our glorious state as thinking people created by God? And so the Apostle Peter gets to it in this little letter, the second letter. In the beginning, he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him, that is, of Jesus Christ. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then this conclusion at the end of the letter, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there it is, the beginning point. The knowledge of Jesus. That's the solution. Knowledge about Jesus, but acquiring knowledge like Jesus. Thinking about Jesus, but also thinking like Jesus. The late Christian philosopher Dallas Willard often said, Jesus was smart. Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived. Jesus was smart. Oh, yes, you got to be smart to walk on water. You got to be smart to heal a blind man with saliva and dirt. You got to be smart to feed a whole congregation with a sack lunch. But it's more than that kind of smart, friends. Jesus' great statement of morality, the Sermon on the Mount pushing us to higher thinking in terms of our sexual ethics, our financial ethics, our relational ethics, our ethics in how we relate to the Father in heaven, to the earth below, and to the rest of humanity. Jesus, time and time again, seeks to elevate our thinking to the highest possible levels that we might use our minds to the glory of God, to be brilliant people, to be moral people, to be holy people at the very top. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is all about human beings who get much, much worse. No boundaries, no borders, no thinking. A cesspool. But for Jesus Christ, it's all about the highest possible thought, the knowledge of Jesus. 
a brief invitation to an event that is in your bulletin, a gathering in Seattle this February, preaching about the last week of Christ's life, ample conversation around tables about the last week of Christ's life. And also, we will be nourished at that event by E. Cantori, our voices, our musicians from this campus, singing a repertoire all about the last week of Christ's life. Whether it's this or something else, my friends, in the beginning, the knowledge of Jesus, not only knowing about him, but thinking like him, this is the way forward. Oh, let me say it again. Jesus Christ was smart. He was the smartest man who ever lived. And so how appropriate that we now give worship to the God of Jesus Christ. Gloria, gloria to the one who deserves all of our worship.